Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm going to return back to Abraham today. We're talking about the patriarchs. And as we pick up the story of Abraham, who's known as Abram at this point in his life, we left off last week, we talked about how he was called, commanded, and blessed. And today we're going to pick up three ideas that follow from the next text here. It's sort of Abraham's obedience, drama, and money. These are three things that come up in the next section of Abraham's life. We do find that he obeyed. We said last time that he was commanded to do something. And at the end of that, he was blessed. And it said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's a promise of God that we know is sure and certain and true. But in verse 4, we find his obedience. Verse 4 says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Abraham obeyed the Lord. He did this by faith, as it says in Hebrews 11. We know that this is the case, and this is a central obedience that we find in the Bible. It's like something that much is made of. Paul makes much of this idea in the New Testament. But we start today's lesson with the fact that Abram heard something from God. And in many ways, it was something that was going to visit a lot of difficulty into his life. I said last time, if you're going into a foreign land, you're probably thinking something along the lines of, well, I'm going to have to learn a new language. I don't know how they'll speak over there. Now, some people might say, well, how do you don't have any evidence that Abram ever learned another language? Well, no, I, I don't. But I will tell you this, you're dealing with the difficulty whether he ever learned that language or not. You're either dealing with the difficulty of, I've got to learn the language, or you're dealing with the difficulty of, I've got to figure out how to relate to a bunch of people whose language I don't know, right? So, in either way, you're talking about a big, big problem that you've got to face. And this is a man that is 75 years old. So, it's a big deal that Abram obeyed God. It's easy for us to go back and project onto the Old Testament. We say, well, Abraham obeyed. Yeah, that was a good thing. But maybe we don't think enough about what it required of Abram to actually obey God in all this. It was no minor deal. And I think one thing that I find here that I've always found curious is that he departed. And if you look, the Lord said, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Now, if you look in this verse, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old. You find that he, he says, Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Well, this to me sounds like his obedience was not quite as perfect as it's made out to be in the book of Hebrews. You might say, well, I see that God said, leave everybody behind and go do this. And he's taken members of his family with him. Now, there's different opinions on this. Some people say, well, when he said, leave your family, he's talking about leaving the broader realm of the people who are around you, not your immediate family. You know, that may be possible. But to me, just at face value, looking at it, it sounds like, you well, know, it looks like he didn't quite conform exactly to what the Lord had there. Whether or not you accept that that was in keeping with God's command or was at variance with God's command, you're going to find a little further on 
that Abraham's obedience in this was not perfect. Whether that was the element of imperfection or not is really immaterial because I'm going to prove to you that it was imperfect. And that raises some issues with the book of Hebrews and maybe we'll come back to that later. So he departed, took his wife, took Lot, his brother's son, took all their stuff and they went to Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land into the place of Sechem and unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. God is reiterating his promise to Abram. Abram has been told to do something through a promise of God. Abram has now obeyed and now he's kind of wandering through this land. And God is reiterating the promise to him. I have to think that when you arrived at Canaan like Abram, and it's a full-fledged society here, right? There's cities and there's stuff going on, people doing things, and they own the land. <laughs> I mean, they're the ones that are there. And he's walking through this in obedience to God, and God is saying, I'm going to give you this land. Now, if I told you to go to Tennessee and walk around from Memphis to Nashville and then go on up to Knoxville, just walk around, wander through the land there, and Tennessee is the land I'm going to give you, and you're going around saying, well, there's a, there's a bunch of big buildings in downtown Memphis, and there's all these farms, and there's houses everywhere, there's people everywhere. Almost as though like every single house you pass, every single person you pass, every field, every ox, every activity going on would seem to emphasize in the natural mind, there ain't no way this is going to come to pass. All these people here, they got all this stuff. God's going to give me this land. I don't even have any children. How is this going to happen? Jesus Christ told us that the meek shall inherit the earth, did He not? He's talking about His people. When you walk around through this earth, and you see all the things around you, do you really believe the promise that you're going to inherit the earth someday? We're joint heirs with Christ, and though we may see a bunch of things around us that in the current times, you know, it seems like we're never going to own the earth. We're never going to be joint heirs with Christ. We're never going to have all this stuff. The world has all that stuff. And I have, if I have any of it, it's just a tiny little speck of it compared to what everybody else has got. It's easy for the natural observations of our eyes to incline us to believe natural and untrue conclusions. But the promises of God tell us otherwise. And faith is that which lays hold of the promise that God has given us. Just to be clear, I struggle with embracing that promise as much as anybody does. I have a natural mind as well, and it often tries to dominate how I think about things. But the Word of God and the promises of God incline us to think about things in a different way. And by the way, one of the benefits of being in the kingdom of God, being in the Sunday assembly where you're hearing the Word of God preached, is that this is kind of like your weekly reminder, if you don't get it anywhere else, that you're kind of not thinking about things the right way. Your natural inclination is to think about things in a carnal fashion. And the Word of God is here to correct you and bring you back in line and say, no, you're not thinking about that the right way. 
you need to recognize you're a joint heir with Christ and you're going to inherit everything. So that's the long-term perspective that we should have on things. But I want you to see as Abram walked through this land and he's seeing all this stuff that was built and he's looking at this land that God said he would give him, what was his response to that? Well, from what we see here, he wasn't staggering in unbelief initially. His reaction was worship. And that's what our reaction should be. We think about the promises of God that we've been given, even though we may not see how they could possibly come to pass. We should nevertheless worship God. When we do that, we're saying, Lord, I believe the promises that you've laid out there. You may be also admitting, I don't see how it could happen. Well, you don't see how much of anything could happen. Honestly, we think too much of our ability to understand whatever's going on around us. You know, much of what we have, honestly, is a complex stacking of technology in human minds over time. There's not a single one of us that could design and build an iPhone, for example. You're standing on the shoulders of intellectual giants who have made numerous scientific and technological advances just for us to be able to have some of the conveniences we have today. And we take those things for granted in the natural world. How much more so in the spiritual realm? I don't understand much of anything about how you would build a phone. That's basically a computer now, right? It's not... Alexander Graham Bell, Watson, come here, I need you. It's not some wires and a couple of little devices that transmit sound like that. We're talking about a computer. I don't understand much at all about that. And I don't understand much of anything about how God upholds the universe by the word of His power. But I know that the Bible declares that it is so, and He's done it. That's what I need to know, and that's what I need to rely upon so don't make too much of your ability to understand all the specifics of how that happened. Just know that it is and act accordingly. And the according way that you should act is to worship God as a result of it. This is one of the problems with lone wolf Christianity out there. A lot of people say, well, I'm just Christian. I'm spiritual. I do my own thing. I'm not connected to the church or to the kingdom of God. That's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be in God's house, and check this out. And he removed from thence unto a mountain of the east Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Bethel means the house of the Lord. Now, you think that has any New Testament implications for you? He's worshiping in the place called the house of the Lord. This idea that I can worship God out on a bass boat or I can worship Him in a deer stand. Well, you can think of God in that way. There may be some aspect of worship and reverence to God you can have in those moments. I would not deny that. But it is not the same as the worship that takes place in the house of God. Neither does it exonerate you from an obligation to serve in the house of God. See that? Even Abram is an example. He didn't even have a church but he had enough sense to know, I've got to have a set-apart place known as the house of God where I'm going to worship God. Right? You'll find that this place, Bethel, has significance later on in the story as we're looking at the patriarchs, but I'll leave that alone for now. 
He built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You see, it's not just, well, I just knelt and prayed somewhere. He actually built an altar to do this. There was a dedicated place, right? There was some effort that went into the matter of how you're going to have this worship service he wanted to have. All of this applies directly to the Lord's New Testament people. Admittedly, we're not doing animal sacrifices here. So I mentioned in one of the uh, question and answer things that was out on the internet and I put on Facebook about when you're dealing with the symbology of the Old Testament, you have to handle both continuity and discontinuity. There are aspects of the metaphor that apply and others that really don't. And you have to think about the purpose of what those metaphors are. Uh, just because Abraham worshiped in that particular way does not mean that we're worshiping in that way. And there's all sorts of things in the New Testament that explain why that is the case. Uh, so you can't stretch it that way. But you do recognize the symbology here. He's worshiping in a dedicated place. It required something of him. It's in response to the promises of God. And that place is called the house of God. That's what it was known as. So important to observe there. Still applicable in our time. Now, verse 9, And Abram journeyed going still toward the south. So that's the obedience portion of Abraham's journey here for which he's praised. And I think there's a lot there that's laudable and lessons we can take. But look in verse 10, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. This doesn't sound like it's going anywhere good. But before I get into that, there was a famine in the land in verse 10. And now he's in Egypt. Right? He made it all the way through Tennessee and now he's in Virginia. God told him to go to Tennessee. Right? And he just kept on going. Why did he keep on going? Well, there's a famine in the land. Did God say, just kind of pass through? We're going to have a drive-by of Tennessee on your way to somewhere else? No, He said, that's the place I'm going to give you. And He passed through it. There was an obedience there. He went. But in the course of observing all this, it's like, well, there's a famine here. So I must just need to keep on going. God never told him to go to Egypt. But He went on down to Egypt, and I think we kind of understand why. But look, He's made this decision now to kind of say, well, I'm going to, maybe I'll come back to Canaan a little later on, but for now I'm going to go to Egypt. This is not something God told him to do. Abram's obedience was not perfect in this regard. Yet it's spoken about in the New Testament as if it is perfect. The only way that can make any sense is if God is looking at Abram through the perfect intercession of Christ. In such a way that it's like you have Christ's obedience on your account. Now, did he obey God in some respects in his life? Yes, he did. And that's laudable. But the only way you could look at his life and say that's perfect is if you're looking at him through the lens of Christ, which removes all his sins, right? If you think about that, think about a glass that you would look through and all of a sudden it removes all your sin. You know, people get on TikTok and these other social media platforms, and we've got them even on our calls. There's a, you're on a Zoom call, you can click on a little button, and it'll make you look better. <laughs> you think they weren't thinking about me when they, 
I feel like they were. I don't turn it on just because I'm like, I'm going to live in truth here. But you see these things on TikTok and whatnot, and people put these filters on, and the filter that you're seeing them through makes them look better than they actually look. It removes their blemishes and whatever, makes their lips more bigger and their hair better. I don't know what all it does. But there's a filter there, right? You're not seeing them as they are by nature. You're seeing them through the lens of some filter that's been applied to them. Well, this is what the intercession of Christ is for us. If we were to look at ourselves in our sin nature and the way we actually are, and based on our personal performance in righteousness, we don't look so great. Blemishes and flaws and all sorts of problems. But when Christ is the intercessor, and God looks at us through Christ, those blemishes are now removed. And it's not just some filter, right? It's not just some hokey pokey, I'm going to make you look better. He's actually done a work that makes it better. You see that? So this idea of the intercession of Christ as it applies to our lives, I know people are at times dogged by the the mistakes of their lives. This is the point I want to make out of this. Some people make some really big mistakes in life. And they're dogged by them for many, many years. And they almost can't get over them. Well, one of the things you have to remember is that God looks at you through the intercession of Christ. Now, that should not equip you to say, oh, well, I can go make more mistakes then. No, think about the pain that the mistakes you've already made have visited into your life. That's not the teaching. But you can know this, God looks at me through Christ. That's how I can look as though I'm flawless, right? On your best day, the best thing you ever did was still so wrapped up in the flesh and had so many problems that without Christ's intercession, it would be unworthy to be set before God. So that's the intercession of Christ and the importance of it. And that's how you reconcile the matter of Abram's obedience being a little wonky. And yet in the New Testament, they're like, you know what? This is a good example. He did this by faith. And it's looking at the good things Abram did and not looking at the mistakes that he made in life. By the way, if we're not judged on that basis, don't any of us have any hope. If we're going to go to heaven and when we get there, they're going to say, well, the intercession of Christ was only about 95% effectual on your behalf. So we're still checking out about 5% of your life. We're done for. It's an all or nothing proposition. By the way, that's why salvation is by grace. It's all what Christ did and none of what you did. So what we find here is uh, that's the instance where I would say it's very evident that Abram's obedience in this matter was not perfect. He had some issues in his life. Maybe you might say, well, he obeyed God for a while and then his dedication to obedience wavered and now he's kind of jumped the rails a little bit. Maybe that's how you think about it, but that seems to be what's going on here. But in verse 11, this is where the drama comes in. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Now who is Abram thinking about here? Is he thinking about himself, or is he thinking about his wife? This is, this is like an unbelievably awful conversation. I mean, it's a Bible story, so everybody can, oh, I know that thing happened where he said lie and all this. Think about this as your wife for a minute, and you're having this conversation. You're going to try to sell this? This is a terrible conversation. 
honey, I know you're good looking. And when we get down there, they're going to think you're my wife and you're so good looking, they're going to want to kill me. Well, so far, Sarah, I may be thinking, okay, I'm, I'm tracking. I get that. Where are we going with this though? Well, look where he's going with it. Verse 13, say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Just lie about it. We're going to lie about it. Now, this is going to raise a whole host of other problems, right? Okay, so if you're not my wife, that means you're fair game on the, uh, on the market out there, so to speak, right? That is not a good arrangement that we're talking about here. And this is Abram. This is Abraham who is so highly regarded in the Bible. You think about terrible things that you may have done over your life that cause you regret and, and have caused pain and difficulty. Well, know this. I'm not trying to affirm you in whatever sins you've practiced in that regard. They were wrong. And your guilt, your conscience in it shows some evidence that you have a sincere conviction about that matter. Nevertheless, we find that Abraham was not perfect. And he did some pretty awful things. Now, this is an awful situation to put your wife in. Save my skin by putting yourself in a position that makes you more vulnerable to all sorts of bad things that might happen. That is a horrible situation. And the things that might happen are not good things, right? It's not like you're going to get a speeding ticket. You follow me? It's bad stuff. Very bad stuff. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Well, she must have been an exceptionally beautiful woman, right? I mean, you've got a famine in Canaan. You've got to imagine there's people coming across the border, and they're seeing people trying to get away from the famine and all this sort of stuff. They're coming across, and there's all these people doing these sorts of things. And it's like, here's one woman here. She's so attractive, we're going to tell Pharaoh about it, right? So this is starting to create the problem that I suspected it might and that we've heard it does. 16, and he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You see, had God not intervened in this situation it would have been absolutely disastrous for Sarai and Abram as well. You have suggested to your wife, I want you to do this thing. And this thing has now put you in this situation that could be absolutely horrible. And I believe undoubtedly would have been absolutely horrible had God himself not intervened in the matter. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Now, Pharaoh, who's, this is talking about a pagan here. There's no indication in the Bible that Pharaoh had been called of God. I don't know what his spiritual state was. Typically, Egypt, though, is regarded as a metaphor for sin and the wicked world and all those sorts of things. I don't doubt that there were some of God's people in Egypt. I'm not making any assertion about what Pharaoh was in terms of a child of God or not. I don't know. But I know this much. His actions here are far more above board than what Abram was doing. You follow me? 
Abram's like, uh, in this instance, I'm going to not trust God. And I'm going to have my wife lie. And it, well, it might not go well for her, but at least it'll save my skin. That's a pretty terrible thing to do. And then Pharaoh finds out about it and he's plagued by it. Somehow he's like, well, I, I get that this was what caused this. He's recognizing something about there's consequences to evil actions here. And he's saying, Abram, why did you do this to me? You've brought all, this situ- all these situations into my life. Why didst thou not tell me she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now that doesn't require much explanation what's talking about there, right? That's the thing we're talking about, the situation that Abram put her in. That's the potential of what could have happened here, right? And he's saying, I could have just done that and I would have been violating some sort of principles here of what's correct, at least in his eyes, because I didn't know any better, right? I might have taken her to me to wife. Now, therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. So there's a a sense in which, look, Pharaoh's acting pretty above board here in this transaction. It seems as though Pharaoh is somewhat appalled by what Abram did. Abraham here is the man of God, the God-called man, the man who has faith, the man who's commended in the New Testament. And yet this is the sort of situation he gets himself wrapped up in. God's people can get themselves in some real trouble when they stop following God by faith. And they say, you know what, I know God told me to go to Canaan, but it looks like there's not much going on here. I might get starve a little bit and might find some real difficulty here. Although he's got lots of food. You see, he's got a grocery store he's bringing along with him. Did you notice that in the text? He's concerned about whether or not God's going to provide for him there. And he's already got a pretty huge provision that he's got in tow with him. Maybe he was concerned about others coming in and attacking him and all those sorts of things. Those would be the things that come to mind. But nevertheless, he decided, I've got to pass on and go on down to Egypt. And once he starts kind of going along the route that was charted by his natural mind... He starts running into problems and it creates issues in his life. I have to believe this very situation caused lots of problems in his marriage from that point forward. Would your level of trust not come down a little bit in your husband if you had been through that particular situation? It would almost be impossible for that not to be the case. Even if it was restored at some point later on, you would think this is going to cause some real problems between them. Well, that's what happens when we stop following God, start following the dictates of our carnal mind. Verse 20, And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Well, they come out of that. But the thing I want you to look at here is that as a leader of his family, as one who was called by God, the mistakes he made had ramifications that play out throughout the rest of his family. It's not like you can say, it's been well said, you know, that no man is an island, right? You can't just do things and it, well, if it affects anybody, it'll just affect me, you know, and everybody else will be fine. It doesn't work that way. You can make mistakes that put your family into difficult and unpleasant situations. And so it's imperative that we continue to keep our focus on following God and not letting the errors that we make bleed over into problems for everybody else in our family and our community and whatnot. That's an important lesson to learn from Abram. Well, they get beyond the drama of that moment. 
And he comes out of Egypt a rich man. So from a carnal perspective you could say, well, you know, hey, it was tough times in Canaan. And Abram saw that, he went down to Egypt and he made some money. By the time he left he was a rich man. Maybe he, maybe he gained in all this, right? Maybe it actually played out to his benefit. Well, I don't know what would have happened had he stayed in Canaan. I do know he would have been obeying God. And so to that extent, I think there would have been some blessing in that, some miracle in that of deliverance. And it's unwritten. We'll never know what it was. It didn't happen. But he comes out of Egypt with great wealth. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. So whatever he did down there, he ended up making a lot of money as a result of it. And he's very rich now. At what price, though? What did this visit into the minds of those who were traveling with Abraham about the importance of obeying God? If someone who doesn't have the sort of direct connection to God that Abraham had is watching this, maybe you're Lot. Right? Here's my uncle. I'm watching what he's doing. I, a lot of people will talk about, man, my uncle was a huge influence on my life. You know, I watched what he did. He made money in business and he did this thing and he got this kind of education. And I really learned a lot of lessons from him about how he lived his life and was successful. Well, what if Lot is looking that way at Abram and saying, well, you know, he saw that we needed to move on from Canaan and we went on to Egypt. Man, we made a bunch of money down there. Now we're coming out of there rich. Maybe this obeying God thing is kind of optional, right? You know, I mean, Sarah, she went through that. There was some drama there, but you know, it, it all worked out, right? Could have been a lot worse. Could the example that Abraham is preaching with his life, which is a blend of obedience and then optional obedience at other times, could this be teaching Lot a thing or two? Could he be saying, well, you got to know when to manage the issue of when to obey God and when not. <laughs> That's how you get ahead, right? That's how Uncle Abram got ahead. I remember that. I wonder. I can't preach that as doctrine, but I wonder because I know people look at their families and they find examples there. He's rich. I won't belabor this point because I think I preached on this chapter a while back, but I'll just say this. They come out with a lot of money. They've got so much stuff they can't hardly stay together, Lot and Abram. And so as you go through this chapter, they end up splitting. And by the way, when they decide to split, there was never any discussion of, you know what, we've got too much stuff. We could manage all this stuff if we'd get rid of about a third of it, right? No discussion of that. It was a presupposition that we're keeping our stuff. So now we've got to figure out how we're going to handle this. Well, we're going to have to go separate ways. And as you know, Lot chooses to go in a bad way. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is verse 12. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now Sodom was a wicked city, as we all know. It was evidently some sort of center of commerce where there was lots of stuff going on, lots of ways to make money. How much of this do you think in Lot's mind is like, well, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, but I can go down here to Sodom just like you went to Egypt. 
and you went down there and made a lot of money, I'm going to take what I have, kind of like what you had when you were passing through Canaan. I'm going to take my stuff. I'm going to go over here to Sodom, and now I'm going to get really rich. It doesn't seem unlikely to me that there was an example set in Abram's disobedience that may have had a very deleterious effect in Lot's life and made him emboldened to follow the urges of his own carnal mind. That's something we should consider when we're playing with the notion of sin and disobedience to God. I posted on Facebook this week, I found another Primitive Baptist, Walsh is his name, and he posted a little cartoon that showed a person pushing over a little domino that said sin on it. And they're saying, this little one won't hurt. Just pushing this little one on, a little sin, right? But the dominoes stack up in a circle and they get larger with each subsequent domino until they come all the way back around and right next to him is this giant domino that says sin. And that's how God's people are a lot of times. They think, I'm just, you know, I'm just push this little one over. And then you start a domino effect that ends up bringing massive consequences of sin into your life. It increases to more and more ungodliness, right? This is one of the things Paul says in the New Testament. And those things have a way of coming right back around and just piling right on top of you. I wonder if in Lot's case, he's not thinking along these lines, well, maybe it's disobedience to God. Maybe I'm straying away from this man who evidently has a relationship with God and I'm going to go down here and make some money. But that's just what he did. He did the same thing. He's rich now and it, it all turned out okay. Our decisions with respect to these things and the complications that come into your life as a result of money can lead us to make bad decisions about our lives and how we are the stewards of our own family and the things that we've been blessed with. He pitched his tent toward Sodom, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Well, that's not a good idea. That's just not going to go well. And that's what happens when people get out in the world. People forsake the Bethel, the house of God, and they say, well, I'm just going to be out there as a lone wolf Christian, kind of doing my own thing. You're out there among people who are exceedingly wicked, and they're going to incline you to wickedness. That's just all there is to it. And you need to be back in the presence of God's people. But through all of this, at the end of this chapter, and we'll end here, the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that a man can number the dust of the earth. Then shall thy seed also be numbered. Well, you see imagery here of New Covenant Christianity and God's chosen people here. By the way, we've been accused at times of being a us for and no more religion. You guys are so particular on this idea of election and, and your doctrine and you're such a small group. You just think it's going to be nothing but primitive Baptists in heaven. We certainly do not believe that. And I want to be very explicit about it for anyone who's ever thought that is the case. We believe it's going to be like the stars of heaven and the sands on, on the seashore. And by the way, if that was only primitive Baptist, we're going to have to be here for another hundred million years. Come up with that number. God's work of salvation is much broader than just the church, right? And just the primitive Baptist people. We believe that because we see it evidently taught in the Bible. But the thing I want to draw out of this, 
Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Even after all this mess that Abram has gotten himself into, his kind of initial obedience and then a falling away and putting his wife in this horrible situation. Now he's come back, he's back in Canaan, and what does God say? I'm going to give you this land. It's the same promise. It even expands on it. He's given him more information about the size of, how massive this nation he's going to be made into is going to be. And the certainty of the promise. You see, the promise is not based on Abram's obedience. But his enjoyment of that promise in the here and now is in many respects related to his obedience. I have to think that Abram had some dark days when he was down in Egypt, particularly when this situation with his wife came to pass. Maybe he thought, we're just going to say, you're my sister, and I'll say, you may pass along, right? Just go on in and that'll be the end of it. Maybe it quickly escalated into, oh, that's your sister? Okay, we'll take her. Take her to Pharaoh. And there's a moment there where they're looking at each other like, what? Okay, I thought we were going to get, I didn't realize it was going to go there, but now it's going there, right? Even after all this horrible stuff happened that was the direct result of Abram's disobedience, he comes back to Canaan and God reiterates his promise to him. And God's promise to him is a picture of his promise in the new covenant to the elect family of God. It's not based on how well you did here. It's not based on your performance in righteousness. I'm telling you again, think about this. If you think that it is in some way, there's no way you could present anything that would make things right with God for all the sin we practice and all the sin we continue to cultivate at times in our own lives. It has to be totally based on the intercession of Christ and it has to be a work of God alone because that's the only way it could be a perfect work. Deuteronomy says, He is the rock, His work is perfect. And that's why we rely on that. The promises of God that we have in the Gospel and in the Lord's New Testament church are unconditional promises. They're part of a covenant that is ordered in all things and sure. God has promised to save His people. And Christ accomplished it at Calvary, and we can be absolutely certain about that. If you've got difficulties in your life, just scrape your knees off and follow the Lord. You're being judged through the intercession of Christ. Now go out and live as you ought. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day. But we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.